This episode of Good Morning Nancy contains a discussion on self-harm, so it might not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. If you're new to the show, welcome. Abby and I have been friends since the day she was born. We both love drinking coffee and talking about our favorite horror movies together. You can find our episodes, blog posts, merch, and more by going over to goodmorningnancy.com. We work really hard on these episodes and do a lot of research. Show us how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. Remember, that's morning with an O-U. This week, we'll be talking about the 2010 horror film Insidious. It's directed by James Wan, and it was written by Lee Wanell, who also stars in the film as the character Specs. <laughs> the film also stars Rose Byrne, Patrick Wilson, Angus Sampson, and the fantastic godmother of horror, Lin Shay. Yes. So, the first first major film that Lee Wanell and James Wan collaborated on was the psychological thriller Saw, which came out in 2004. We talked about this movie in season one, so if you'd like to listen, it is episode 10. Wow, I can't believe that was season one. It was, yeah. Holy cannoli. It was the final episode of season one, yeah. Dang. Okay, so Saw was a huge success for Lee and James, and by the time production for Insidious began, there were already six Saw movies. Wow. Yes. So basically, there was a Saw movie every year since the first one came out. Mm -hmm. As we discussed in our Saw episode, there really wasn't a lot of gore in these movies. It was only when Lee and James left the franchise that the gore became more prominent in the films. And that's when it was sort of known as like that type of film. Gore porn? Gore porn? Yeah. Yeah. So even so, the two of them were automatically assigned to the Splat Pack Splat pack. I like it. Yeah, and it's a collection of independent filmmakers who, since the early 2000s, have directed, written, and produced numerous ultra-violent and gory R-rated horror films. Oh, dear. Yes. Other directors in the Splat Pack are Eli Roth, yeah, Robert Rodriguez, ah. and Rob Zombie. Oh, what a bunch. What a bunch. <laughs> the Splat Pack. <laughs> As thrilled as Lee and James were to be a part of a special horror movie movement, they both felt that they could offer more to the horror genre. They wanted to show audiences that they were more than just the gory guys who started the Saw franchise. James Wan's favorite horror film is the 1982 film The Poltergeist. Wow. While Lee Wannell's is the 1980 film The Shining. (laughs) Both are about American families dealing with very scary touchy spirits (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) that's when they decided that that would be their next project together is something sort of based on those two films that they love so principal photography for insidious was completed over a course of just three weeks in early 2010 which is nuts because that movie is beautiful yeah it i guess like patrick wilson was saying that you know Everybody just had their lines down. Everybody was just on time to the set. Like, there was, like, no drama or anything. Like, everything went 
like super smooth. Whoa. So they just finished filming at a, in a really timely manner. That's wild. Well, you know, and that just goes to show you that if you just do your job and if you just show up prepared. <laughs> if you just don't suck, <laughs> you will get your movie done. Wow. <laughs> so that's what happened. Like everybody was just like going with the flow and it was great. So they finished in just three weeks. Dang. And the film had its world premiere at the Midnight Madness program that's at the Toronto International Film Festival. And that was on September 14th, 2010. Hmm. Less than a few hours after Insidious's screening, the U.S. distribution rights to the film were bought by Sony Pictures. That's... Like, yeah, super soon after they showed it. Holy crap. Yeah, James Wan said in an interview shortly after that 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 was the first time a film had been picked up that fast at the Midnight Madness program. Holy cow. Yeah. And this was all... it was a horror. Like, that's... Ugh. That's so great. Yes, it was horror. And it was also during the recession. Dang. Yeah. And so I think Sony Pictures saw it and they were like, yes, that's going to make us money during this difficult time. Mm. So they immediately got the rights to distribute it. Wow. So Insidious had a budget of only $1.5 million, and it earned $97 million at the box office altogether. My God. Yeah. So they made a crap ton of money. Audiences loved it, but critics were mixed, with the consensus being that aside from a shaky final act, Insidious is a very scary and very fun haunted house thrill ride. Mm-hmm. So with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. So Insidious follows the Lambert family, uh, which is a husband and wife, Renee and Josh, and their three kids. The main focus is on Dalton, their oldest son, which is my boyfriend's name. <laughs> Anyway, so Dalton falls into a three-month coma after exploring the attic of their new home because he kind of he falls off a ladder and bumps his head or whatever. Right. Uh, but it turns out that he's actually not in a coma. He's astro-projected himself into a place called the Further and is being stalked by insidious spirits who want to possess his body. And one in particular who really just haunts the crap out of the family and is he's so scary. So as Renee begins to sense the evil presence of these spirits in their home, the family decides to move to another house. But the haunting continues no matter where they go. So the family employs the help of Elise, a medium, who assists Renee and Josh in retrieving their son from the further. Now, Elise is really scared that Dalton is about to be lost forever mm. because he's been wandering in the further for so long. And the more someone's spirit wanders in the further, the more susceptible they are to being possessed by evil spirits. So um, they decide to send Josh, the father, into the further to go and retrieve Dalton. So... Josh travels into the realm of tortured souls and evil entities, and he's able to pull Dalton back into the realm of the living. But as he does this, Josh is actually possessed by one of the evil spirits. Mm. And he comes back and kills Elise. Mm. And then Renee finds out, and the movie ends. It's a real cliffhanger. Good thing there's more Insidious movies. <laughs> there's so many more. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. And I remember when I first saw this and 
it ended and I, I was in the theaters and I thought, oh, this can't oh. be it. Oh, it is. Oh, there's no after credit sequence. Got it. So that's yeah. not a happy ending. <laughs> it's a marketing ploy. Yeah. But no, I loved it. I love the ending. I, you know what? I think it was very brave of them to end it that way because it, um, I mean, we talked about this in Jaws, like, happy endings were like not a thing before 1975 and people were totally cool with that and so the fact that this was a 2010 film that ended pretty like pretty sadly like you know how horror films will end and you're like oh no it's not over you Mm -hmm. know but this one was almost like hit you right in the heart yeah because it's the dad yeah also i don't feel as bad for josh as i do for renee well yeah because she already Freaking this whole film, she's already trying to like hold her family together oh in the God. first place and because I'm pretty sure she is suffering from like postpartum depression. Oh no, she absolutely is suffering from some sort of depression. Yeah. And Josh is so he he avoids the family to the best of his ability. Like yeah. he has checked out. Mm-hmm. And you can really feel how much is being put on her. Within, like, the first 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. Not even. Maybe even 10 minutes. Like, it's just so hard for her. And he's just like, oh, oh, well. Like, it's hard for me, too. And it's like, no, I don't think you understand, though, what she's going through. Oh, my God. It's difficult to watch. It really is. Because she... Man, the whole tone of the beginning of the movie is so eerie. But it's also incredibly heavy. Mm -hmm. Like, even... Everything from the colors of, like, the setting to... It's very gray. And she's a musician, and, you know, like, the music that she's playing in the beginning scenes and stuff, it's very melancholy. Which is a really great point, because she talks to Josh about how she was writing music that day, and he's like, oh, were you writing it about me? And she goes, they're yeah. all about you. Yeah. And I remember, I remember thinking, like, oh, that was a sad song, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, you know, yeah. I just thought that I thought that was a really great, subtle moment that had a lot of power to it still. Yes. So. And also, I think this film does a really, really great job. It came out in 2010 and it's it was kind of like that weird transition year, I feel like, for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Like we really started talking about mental health a lot, lot more. I agree, yeah. So that was kind of in the forefront of everyone's mind. The whole film is centered around someone not having control of their body or their surroundings or the things that are happening to mm-hmm. them. So it was very um it was very fitting for the time. Yeah, because really, all- everyone was like, "Oh my god, what's going to happen?" You know yes. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of uncertainty. Right. I absolutely agree. I think that's a great observation. So yeah. with that said, let's look at the Bechtel test. Uh, Heck yeah. Yeah, it actually does pass. When the mother, Renee, who we were just talking about, is talking to her mother-in-law, Lorraine, about moving houses. Mm. Now, they're actually having a very lengthy conversation. And in that conversation, they do talk about uh, Dalton, who is, you know, he's a boy, but he is still a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also talk about Josh, who's obviously a man. Right. They sort of talking about like the problems that they're having with them and what's going on and the haunting and whatever and feeling weird about it. But they do mention very briefly about being in the house and Renee feels insecure about it. Yeah. She feels like 
I'm a mother and like things are crazy for me right now. And like, I feel really bad that I'm making everybody move to this new place. And Lorraine says something along the lines of nobody feels how you're feeling. Right. Like nobody could understand how you feel right now. Yeah. Which is actually really interesting because Lorraine goes through exactly what she went through mm-hmm. with Josh. Because we learned that Josh is also somebody who can do astral planning. But she doesn't like say like, oh, well, I totally understand. Like she just says like, I, I, we don't understand exactly what you're going through. Which is so refreshing to see right. in a movie where there is a relationship between a mother and daughter-in-law. Yes. Because it's always like, like they're at each other's throats constantly. Yes, the relationship is always fractured in some way. Yeah. Or there's like mother-in-law jokes. Yes. And there isn't any. Like they're very close. Yeah. She's a very supportive mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think that's an amazing thing to show in a modern film. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of The Adams Family because in The Adams Family oh, TV yeah. show... Uh, there's like for the first time in a long time in TV history, like there were no mother-in-law jokes because yes. the mother, a mother lives in the house with them mm-hmm. and they don't make fun of that, that she's there. Like it's just normal and she's part of the family. So there's nothing to be like upset about kind of thing. Right. And in that didn't, that happened then and, and it sort of like, that was like the only example. Mm-hmm. But then again, you see this in Insidious where there's no jokes. They don't all live together, but they all live as a unit in in a way where like they all like take care of each other right so yeah that's a great observation yeah that's cool Mm -hmm. good morning nancy is proudly sponsored by recess coffee we wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans and the great part is is that each batch of coffee is locally artisanally roasted and it comes from fair trade farmers gracie what's your favorite blend Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Nancy's dream team test, one, is the supporting cast at least 50% women? Unfortunately, no. Two, did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No, on all accounts. Three, was the final girl a person of color? Nope. Four, were there any openly LGBTQ characters in the film? Yes, technically. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, Uh, but at the time of this film... One of the characters was not supposed to be in the LGBTQ community. Uh, but like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I do want to add that James Wan is of Malaysian descent. Mm-hmm. So he is a person of color. So that does count towards inclusion in the horror genre by having a non-white person direct a horror film. Nice. So I think that that's really great and we shouldn't, you know. Right. 
you know, we, we should talk about that because I think that's really great. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the insidious entities in this film. Oh, God. Which one's your favorite? Uh, the lipstick face demon. Lipstick face. So for those of you who might not know, lipstick face demon is Darth Maul. <laughs> Listen. All right. He's Darth Maul. You can't. He is. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought when I saw that film. That is surprisingly not the first thing that popped into my head because really? I was so terrified. I'm not kidding. This movie, I don't know what it is about the, it's not even the rest of the Insidious franchise. It's just this first one. I think because it was such, it was like a new wave of haunting and possession movies that like James Wan kind of, and Lee Wanell like led. Right. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. Um, but it was not like anything I had seen before. Mm-hmm. And I watched it on Halloween with a group of friends. And I mean, like we all kind of were like laughing and trying to like make light of it. But we yeah, were because you were scared. We were all terrified. Right. Of course. Like I, sp- I ended up spending the night there and <laughs> I like snuggled with one of my best friends because I was so scared. I just remember having awful dreams and that demon being in all of these dreams it was terrifying it was awful it was awful i uh i yeah i also saw this i saw this film in theaters when it first came out and Ugh. everybody was freaking out in the audience it was oh my great. god it was it was one of the last times i'd been to a film where the whole audience was like <gasps> like freaked out yeah. so it's kind of neat yeah lipstick man is pretty creepy that's for sure so he is uh actually (laughs) he's called the lipstick man because the special effects guys actually put lipstick on his face for makeup wow so like his makeup is basically made of lipstick okay yeah makes sense yeah so that's that's why they called him that he's also played by composer joseph bashara who did wow. the, who did the music for this film? Get out of town. Yeah, so that Oh, no. Opening credits was him. He also did the music for The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 and the first Annabelle. You can definitely tell. Yes. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Ugh. So my favorite is the little ghost boy. Aw, the tiptoe through the tulips boy. Yeah, so he's actually played by adult actor Ben Wolfe. What? Yes, who played Meep in American Horror Story Freak Show. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, Ben Wolfe passed away in 2015. He Mm. was in a car accident and he was 34. Oh no. Yeah, so it's really sad. But I mean, I thought that that was a really, really great creepy little uh ghost that he played i think he did a good job he did a great job uh another one that i wanted to point out is jay larose i think it's larose or it's larosa he is a navajo actor and he played the long-haired man who was always in the baby's room and listeners might know him from the horror musicals repo the genetic opera and devil's carnival Oh, hey. He's in both of those. Yeah. Wow. So those are the three like major spirits in that one. And then, of course, we have the veiled lady. They have the woman in black. Yeah. So what is really interesting is that that character is played by a man. And 
he is also the same person who plays him in the second one. Because mm-hmm. I know, like, they have a backstory in the second, I believe it's the second Insidious. And he is somebody who is a mental patient. And, okay, I know this is about the second Insidious, but I think we should mention it. Yeah. Um, in the second one, he is somebody who uh, tries to cut off his penis because he feels like he's a woman. And I, th- you know, it's it's a really touchy subject because with um, people who are transgender, yeah, it's uh, it's almost sort of like mm, that's that stigma. <sighs> yes, and it, it's and of course the woman, the woman in black or the veiled woman is a bad guy, yeah. and is you know, and I feel like the trans community doesn't get represented positively in horror films. And it's 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 bad stigma, and I think that uh, they really could have, I think they could have done better with it. I think I mean it was still like the next year, I think, is when the second one came out. Right. I think people were still a little ignorant about that kind yeah, of stuff. I don't think they were having as much of a conversation as what's happening now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think that that's a kind of a bit of a touchy subject, and that might be a trigger for some people. Um, but they, before that even, that story even happened, uh, James Wan casts a man to play the woman, the woman in black anyway. Yeah. So before, because I remember I was uh, watching an interview with Lee Wanell and he says, he's like, people think that I plan these movies out. He's like, I don't, I really just plan a movie and then see what happens and then I'll make another one. I'll write the other one. So crazy because, because of how the franchise ends basically it's just one giant loop yes you're right yeah it is so for those of you who don't know yeah the first insidious is actually like the third insidious in in the timeline uh i think so yeah because elise dies in the first one right but she's in she's in the second one as a spirit but then then the other ones that come after she is alive and it's sort of like the times like right before the first one happens Mm -hmm. so and then of course the latest one is her whole backstory about her childhood so right yeah that's right the last key and you get to yeah you get to see where this comes into play in the last key so right yeah so um so i thought that was kind of interesting that james wan casts a man to play a woman mm-hmm. and then lee wanell used that in the second one uh, but there was no intention of that for in the first place. Wow. And the actor actually said that um, James Wan likes to sort of cast out of, like, he doesn't like to cast type. He likes to cast, like, something different. Yes. And I think that um, that was kind of interesting that he wanted to cast a, a man to play a woman mm-hmm. just to give it, like, a different feel, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. But, so yeah. This movie did something a little different, like you were mentioning earlier. It has astral planning in it. Yes. Now, I want us to really talk about that. So the film itself was going to be called either the astral or the further until they decided on Insidious. And I'm actually pretty glad that they didn't hint at what it, you know, what happens in it. Because Mm -hmm. the whole idea of astral planning is not a new thing, obviously. But it's, like you said, it's different. It's never been done before. Right. Uh, What did you think about that? Um, I loved it because, well, like you said, it had never been done before, but it was a very fresh perspective 
about the whole idea of being possessed by something because it's like not very well explained I feel like in possession movies what happens to a person when they're being possessed so to have that kind of explanation for it was really cool but it also you know gives people the opportunity to view an entire different setting you know what I mean so there's this whole other world and whole other realm with all of these different layers and all these different characters from all different backgrounds that you can put into one place. So I think that's really cool. Right. And I think some, I actually think some people were a little disappointed because I think people went into this thinking it's going to be a haunted house movie and mm-hmm. they'll move and the thing will be it'll be different or whatever. Right. Or, you know, they're possessed like in The Exorcist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of interesting that they were like, oh, we'll just move and it will solve our problems. And it's like, that's what you always tell people in haunted house movies, right? Mm -hmm. Just move and it'll be fine. Yep. And they did that and it wasn't fine. And I thought that that was a really clever way to sort of like squash that trope. Yes, because the whole tagline is it's not the house that's haunted. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was like, oh, oh, my God. It was so fresh. Very fresh, yeah, and which is really kind of interesting because apparently seven years ago when the film came out, people were comparing it to Paranormal Activity, which came out right before it. Mm. Right, because watching Insidious now in 2018, I did not get that feeling at all because, because I think because I've seen so many films since Paranormal Activity yeah. about haunted families and yeah. that I'm just like... I don't even think about comparing the two but because they came out so close together I think people were just like oh it's just like paranormal activity and it's like mm, but it's not really Wasn't at all there something with a baby monitor and paranormal activity maybe that's why people compared it yeah, maybe but- it wasn't the first one maybe it was a couple installments later right, but yeah. I don't know I still didn't I, don't- I mean baby monitors are already freaky like right- I hate them they're very freaky i really do i remember babysitting for somebody once and they had a three-year-old and she got up in the middle of her nap <sighs> and just started talking oh, to nothing the worst and she was just pretending and playing but it was just like uh <laughs> yeah i was not okay with it no but yeah so when i heard that people were like oh it's like paranormal activity i was like not really but going back to astral projecting uh that's so spiritual yes that's like almost more spiritual than like having an exorcism or like the Catholic Church getting involved. Like this is sort of like because like astral planning is all over. Like dif- it's, it's in, in so many different religions. Yeah, it's not something that's just one type of religion or one type of belief. Like it's all over the place. And yeah, so there's a book called "Where the Spirits Ride the Wind." Trance Journeys and Other Ecstatic Experiences by Felicita D. Goodman. And she says, what happens on a spiritual journey? People fly away on bird's wings, peacock clouds, spread their shimmering tail feathers. A woman with stars in her hair guards the entrance to the world below and humans turn into albatrosses alight with the waves of the ocean. These are some of the tales that people tell when they come back. Oh, I mean, that sounds great. It's just beautiful, right? It's yeah. like poetry. And uh, the idea of astral traveling is so incredibly ancient. And like we just said, in 
multiple cultures. And I just feel like this is such a great thing that we can all kind of connect to because not all of us are Catholic, not all of us are religious, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I think there is like a spirituality in most of us. Yeah. And I think like having astral planning in this movie sort of is a connection to a larger crowd. Not only that, I know that I have also heard of people who have really horrible night terrors. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, what is that called when you can't move? Sleep paralysis. Oh, yes. People who experience that sometimes have, you know, been known to have out-of-body experiences. And they can see things standing in their bedroom. But they are watching their body and their body can't move. But this shadowy figure is moving towards them and it's it sounds pretty friggin awful I'm glad that I've never really had to deal with that but yeah I've actually never had an experience like that either I have had out-of-body experiences though yes so tell me like how you feel like that feels for you because I know that you've had out-of-body experiences as well yeah I've had a couple pretty intense ones like while I've been it's like that weird time either when you are falling asleep or you're coming out of like a really crazy dream it's uh, and it's always really uncomfortable like I've never been okay with it when it's happened and I it's just that thing of like not being able to control your body and being an outsider from your body and having to watch yourself it's very strange and like I've I wake up and it's, I get that like weird feeling in the pit of my stomach like that was not okay. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting in this film, they show the out-of-body experience, but your soul, instead of, instead of you being able to see the living, like, because I, because my out-of-body experiences have been me like actually like seeing my body do things during the day. Whoa. And it's a little intense, yeah. And I I have actually had experiences where I, like, can see myself, like, doing the dishes or see myself, like, walking down the street. And it's really, it's only happened to me a few times, but it is super weird. In this one, though, like, the astral planing, instead of seeing, like, the living, you see the dead. Yeah. And so instead of seeing your your body and he and I guess Josh does see it at first and then he travels deeper and deeper into the further and all he sees are spirits yeah now what I I think is kind of interesting is that it's it's a bad thing yeah because none of these spirits are happy none of them are good they're all sort of lingering mm-hmm. which is kind of frightening and um I kind of think it's interesting that he only sees like that I mean he sees that family no. Yeah, about the the girl who kills her family and yeah. they all have like weird smiles on their faces and mm-hmm. I think that that's a, an interesting take because we just like we just read here from the book like it's it's a very beautiful wonderful thing to go astral planning or astral traveling but this um but this experience not so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's talked about in the other insidious movies too about how people do things that they are not it's atypical behavior. Mhm. So of course it attracts something terrible. Mhm. So the more you stray from the path of what you're supposed to be doing, the more 
horribleness you attract into your own life because you don't know what you're doing like you're not like Elise who is very experienced and another thing that they really focus on too with Elise is that she mostly experiences horrible things also but she is a really experienced medium and you know she will talk to her husband and stuff sometimes who passed away but, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, it's mostly like people seeking her out so that she can solve their problems because they're like, I messed up. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, OK. And I do want to because I want to talk more about Elise mm-hmm. uh, in her final thought. But I do want to add that there is no scientific evidence that there is a consciousness or a soul which is separate from normal neutral activity or that one can consciously leave the body and make observations. Claims of scientific evidence of astral projection are pseudoscientific. Yeah. So I just said BS to you guys. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I guess, you know, people's spiritual experiences. Um, well, like the other thing about that, too, though, is that there are very intelligent scientists who are also spiritual. Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of hard because as soon as they introduce any kind of like research or theories to anyone other scientists will shrug it off and be like oh it's pseudoscience which totally understandable if you don't have solid proof then it's not technically a science but but i think it's still important to take that stuff into consideration Mm -hmm. especially if you're a scientist because you know You never stop exploring and you never stop looking for those answers. Absolutely. I think it's really great to be skeptic. I mean, people used to think the world was flat. Remember those days? They were hardcore convinced. (laughs) Or that everything revolved around the earth. Yeah. Jeez Louise. Hilarious. (laughs) The dark ages. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into our final thought. So Elise is an old final girl. Yes, she is. She's not a teenager like normally they would be. And you can argue that Renee is sort of the final girl in this, but she's not. Elise is the main character, I think, of the franchise. Like, she's not maybe the focus of this one, but it's very clear that the Insidious franchise is about Elise. Yes. Who is in her 70s. Yeah. And I think that is freaking amazing. I mean, can you name any other franchise that stars a woman in her 70s, let alone one that has the power that she has? I can't think of any off the top of my head. The only one I can think of is the medium from the poltergeist. Yeah. And, And she's not the main focus of the franchise of the poltergeist either. But Elise is is in all of them. Yeah. And she plays some sort of major role. So I think that that's really great. If you guys can think of one that we're missing, let us know. But off the top of my head, Elise is is the main character of this whole thing. Another thing that I think is really interesting is that despite how easy it is for them to be kind of jerks to Elise, (laughs) Specs and Tucker, who are her... Like her goons, I guess. I don't know. What's a better word for Uh, that? Assistants? Sure. That's better than goons. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Her assistants. Yes. Uh, They really respect her. Yeah. I mean. It's very sweet. It really is. It's super sweet. Yeah. And, I mean, they 
they trust her, they work for her, they want to make sure that her goals are met in this whole thing. Like, they don't say anything that's jerky, like, whatsoever. And, like, they could be totally, like, self-righteous and mansplained, and (laughs) they never do. They let her be the, you know, be the expert. And I think that that's amazing. And not that they both aren't experts in their own type of field yeah like tucker's the one who's really good with all like the technology stuff Mm -hmm. and specs is the one who i mean he's the one who can draw and stuff so like he like draws out like everything that elise sees and stuff for her so that they can accurately show like the people that they're trying to help like what is happening right and they so they all play a part and nobody steps on anyone else's toes yeah and i think that that's very healthy work environment to see is men and women working hard like hard together and then the men not like the men not talking bad about their boss who's a woman yeah exactly which i think can happen a lot mm-hmm. like female bosses are looked at as like shrill yes or or they're called bossy that's why i love james wan and lee Wanell as a team yes because they do a great job with that because they do it in well james wan does it in the conjuring and it just it it just works it does. He, and it, ma- it makes the film better. You know what I mean? Because you can put that in a horror film, but it doesn't make it any better or more entertaining. If anything, you're just like, Meh. Exactly. Well, it's it's like cornballish. You know what I mean? Like, right. You just look at it and you think this again. Yeah. But when you watch these movies that they do, like, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air. Like you said, like this whole film really is. And talking about Elise again, she's not tough. Like, in a physical sense. Right. Like, she's an older woman. But she wears, like, pastel cardigans. She's so cute. She, Lynn Shea talked about how she feels like, um, you know, when she was doing, like, her own backstory for her character, she said that, you know, she has a rose garden. Yeah. That she likes to, like, tend to and stuff. And, you know, so many characters her age have to prove that they're, like, rowdy or able to, like keep the audience's attention they have to do something that's like super like tough or masculine yeah or they're like a sassy old lady yes exactly now i don't mean to kind of diss on this because it's not meant to be that way but as an example would be uh rub zombies 31 yes where there is a lot of women in it and a lot of women over 40 yeah who are the main characters which is freaking fantastic and i I love it that was the first thing i noticed while watching that that all the women were older and i loved it the only thing is is that they were all like very masculine like they didn't have a lot of feminine tendencies to them very rough around the edges right and there's nothing wrong with that but if we're going to compare that to elise and insidious elise is very feminine Mm-hmm. And she doesn't have to prove to be masculine, very masculine in order to save the day. Right. And I think that that's really great because in feminism, we need to respect all women, mm-hmm. whether they're very feminine or very masculine. And we need to uh, realize that just because women are very feminine and they like to have pink around them and they like flowers and they like that kind of stuff, that doesn't mean they're not strong and capable. And I think that Elise is a really great example of that. Yeah, exactly. And I also love, side note, talking about Renee really quick yeah please go ahead I'm sad for her character but I also don't think that she realizes her own strength like she literally says to Josh Mm -hmm. you can do this you're stronger than me but it's not the case at all 
She actually, she's one of the strongest ones in this, yeah. Yeah, and I think Elise knows that, and she really, like, plays into that character a lot, because she, like, comes along, and Renee is like, oh, great, somebody who finally believes me and believes what's going on. Right, yeah. And, of course, there's Josh, who is super skeptical, and he's like, nah, this is crazy. Like, let me protect my wife, and she's super naive, and she doesn't know what she's talking about. But Elise doesn't say to Josh, like, you need to back off. Like, I know what I'm talking about. She kind of lets them have their own space to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But she's always willing to come back and help. And I love that. I adore that about her character because yeah. she's not pushy. And yeah, she doesn't react like you would typically think or see someone in a film react. So. You're right, because I think that that's another thing that women do go through is that in order for them to get anything done or in order to communicate with difficult people, they have to be like super pushy. They have to act masculine, you know, but the fact that they can write a woman mm-hmm. who like is clever and can get around things without being like pushy in that sense. Yep. It's really great because, I mean, I think it's sort of lazy writing when you don't know how to write female characters who try to get a point across. Yes. So. Exactly. That's awesome. So Insidious, good time, guys. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Good Morning Nancy. We are almost done with the season. Wow. Yeah, we have one more full-length episode, which we revealed in our live stream a couple weeks ago, and it's going to be Freaks, so it's going to be a great time. We're going to have fun talking about that. It's going to be so cool. Yeah, I can't wait to see you guys for the season finale. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at GoodMorningNan, Facebook at GoodMorningNancy, and Instagram at GoodMorningNancyPodcast. And write a review about our show on your favorite podcast app. It's so simple, but it really helps us a lot. You guys are the best. You guys really are the best. Have a great morning. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.